Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast to take place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jake. And we're so excited to be back here in the Decision Space with you all again to have this week uh, what we talk about discussion to talk about signposts. But Jake, before we get into things, how have you been doing? I've been doing great, man. Uh, had a very nice weekend playing some outdoor dexterity games and <laughs> just had a great time. How about yourself? That's awesome. I'm doing really well. I, yeah, I've been playing, a, played a bunch of games this weekend. Just felt great getting some cards to the table. Um, also, I've been exploring the Pokemon trading card game, just like the actual physical game, which I haven't looked at the modern version embarrassingly in far too long. And it's so interesting. But for a different day. Today, we're talking about signposting. But before we get to that, next episode, for our pre-planners out there, the people who like to play along and experience games before we discuss them, we want you all to know that you can plan your next turn for our episode next week in which we're going to explore Grand Austria Hotel, a game that Jake loves and I'm terrible at. It is a it's a it's like one of those games right where the first the first time you play it if you're playing with somebody experienced they're just going to lap you. Yeah. But then I find that the learning curve can happen really quickly. There's some really interesting systems in it. There's a really cool dice drafting uh action selection mechanic mechanism. And if you want to play Grand Austria Hotel, we definitely recommend checking out the implementation on Yukata. Um, which is an awesome website that Jake and I are always promoting in addition to Board Game Arena. Yeah. Not even a sponsor. We just pass. Yeah, we just we'll just show for free for Yukata. Yukata. Yukata, yeah. But people are gonna get mad at us for saying Yukata all the time. But yeah, whatever. We apologize. <laughs> yeah, we apologize. Awesome. Well, I feel like it, one of the, my favorite things about the What We Talk About episodes is it allows us to jump really quickly in. And sometimes, Jake and I, when we do these episodes, we focus on, you know, something, uh, a topic that is uh, maybe less specific or, or less about defining an idea or a concept. And sometimes we dive right in and try to discuss a concept or an idea that we use in our discussion and the way that we talk about games and their decision spaces. And this week is exactly one of those episodes. So we're hoping to introduce to you the idea of signposts. This is a, a game design term that I've primarily heard used in video game design, but I've heard it from a bunch of board games designers as well. And I think if you are a casual game player, uh, you're not super interested in board game design, but you avidly play and enjoy board games, we hope that this week will really equip you with a new lens uh, to look at and maybe more quickly identify strategic paths in the games you're playing. And if you are interested in design, well, we're going to pull the hood up and maybe talk about some of the tricks that game designers use to get players uh, walking, running, diving in the right directions in their game spaces. That sounds great. Uh, I can't wait to get started i feel like i'm gonna learn something here today <laughs> that's hope we both do that's i feel like generally with these episodes it gets us going in the right direction when we can talk with each other and that's really what signposts are so jake and i are going to broadly define signposts at the beginning of the discussion and then hopefully by the end of the discussion we'll have we'll all including you listener will have a more direct and concrete idea of exactly what we're talking about as jake and i have been trying to directly tease out what fits under the category of a signpost. But loosely, signposts are mechanics, scoring, uh, scoring conditions, even game pieces that direct the player down a strategic path. They're, they're literally little signposts that the designer places in the game to sort of say, oh, maybe you want to go this direction in the decision space, or maybe you want to go that way. Uh, run over there and see, see what the decision space will do to you and maybe pushes players in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Just something that clues you in as a player about something you might want to be doing in the game. And from that little leaping off point, all of a sudden you feel as though you're having a more strategic experience as opposed to doing something, you know, that feels more, you know, random or aimless. So a very important tool in the designer's arsenal and something that even if you're not perhaps aware of, uh, you, you probably are subtly picking up on as you play your favorite board games. Yeah, definitely. And I think 
Interestingly, we've talked a lot on uh, Decision Space about how sometimes in games, you when you really understand the game, there you will be presented with lots of choices that aren't really decisions that you have to make. Uh, so there won't there will be a very clear path through the game, and maybe you have come to that by following signposts in the game, or maybe you've just played the game enough that it's clear to you what direction you needed to go. Right, so you maybe there's a game that doesn't have a lot of signposts, but you've just played enough that you know the path through the game, the strategic path to get you to the end point. Or maybe you've played games where you've gotten to that point uh, without having to find, follow a signpost. But in general, I think signposts are ways to help players feel like they're making meaningful decisions also. So Jake and I this week, we, you know, we have some friends of the show and we always want to try to bring in other perspectives and thoughts when we reach out. So Jake, do you want to sort of kick off maybe uh, the designer's mind mini segment? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess to preface this, I uh, sent my friend Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games a, a message earlier today and was like, hey, Jamie, uh, I'm going to be recording a podcast in a couple hours. I wonder if you have a few seconds uh, to to answer a prompt about signposting. Um, and he was kind enough to reply. So I just wanted to sort of read that out and maybe we can talk a little bit about Jamie's philosophy uh, with the caveat that this was a short kind of turnaround. Anyway, so Jamie says, well, I haven't used the terminology I like signposts and guideposts. I think about signposts quite a bit. I want players to choose their own strategic paths, but have little elements of variation that nudge them in different directions, both for guidance when they're trying to figure out what to do and to encourage a diversity of strategies. I would say that letting players find and choose their strategic path is fairly important to me. My preferred approach is to offer a clear-cut overall goal, e.g. have the most coins, and show player a bunch of different ways, some static and some variable, where they can obtain the thing they need to achieve that goal. That's awesome. I'm so thankful, Jamie, if you're listening, that you took the time to send this into us. And uh, I'm, I really appreciate you sort of laying this out in this way, because I think one thing Jake and I went back on, back and forth on a little bit is, what's the difference between a signpost and a, a destination? And I feel like in some ways, Right, like if signposts are leading you somewhere, destinations are almost the end goal that you're trying to get to. And in some ways, what I'm hearing Jake from what Jamie's saying here is when the way in which Jamie, in his design, thinks about signposts or guideposts are different paths that could get you towards an ultimate end goal, and offering the player those different paths all to that one final destination of maybe like a victory point payout or something like that. And I don't think all games function that way, but it's really interesting how Jamie emphasizes in his games, he wants players to feel agency over the paths they take and the decisions they get to make on how they get to that destination following the signposts. Totally. And one thing I thought was really interesting about Jamie's answer to this question is that I think a lot of my thinking about signposts had been around, you know, finding a good strategy, right? How do mm. I, as the player, play the game the best? What am I looking for to point me towards optimal play and optimal strategy? But from the designer perspective, uh, it's, at least Jamie is, is less so concerned with the players finding the best path through the game, but in finding a variety of paths, right? So that there are different things you can do, different things you can pick up on that'll lead you to different directions. And of course, that's something that I really enjoy in a game uh, where, you know, you feel like, oh, hey, there are v multiple viable paths to victory. So it makes perfect sense that the designer would want to sign both to let people know that uh, so that they're likely to be uncovered kind of early and often in, in the, the lifespan of that game. Yeah, it's very interesting. So often, I, I feel like there's this way in which people think about and talk about games sometimes, um, in which people suggest that like strategic paths just happen within games or game systems. And I think that that can happen in game systems depending on their complexity. What do you but, What do you mean by that? So, like, like the designer isn't aware of it, and it's it's like emergent through play. I think that there's that perspective exists a lot that like game design is just like creating systems and then they interact and then magically 
strategic paths come out of them. And sometimes that definitely happens, especially with really complex game designs that are focused on sort of multiple emergent systems interacting. But I think a lot of times strategies are designed. A designer had to sit down and say, I want a path to exist here. And I think what Jamie's saying is, I want a path to exist here and here. And some games, I want this path to be less less of a direct path and maybe riskier, depending on the variable paths, uh, if the paths are shifting, in Jamie's words, what does he use? Uh, a variation that nudge them in different directions. So I think what Jamie's really saying is maybe, I'm going to lay out a bunch of signposts but I'm going to shift the environment from game to game and what that will look like, which I think then the emergent decision consequences are players have to evaluate in any given version of that game with these variables, which path is the correct path. So path identification becomes the game. But oftentimes I think signposts are interesting because they're designers intentionally saying, we built a strategy just look down this path and see if you can bring those pieces together. And sometimes they might be there and maybe sometimes the signposts lead you a little astray. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess when you're thinking about pathing in a game and signposts leading you down a path, they might not be the same for every player. So Mm. for example, uh, in, in Jamie's most recent game, Red Rising, he points to uh, the different houses uh, as an example of this. So each person gets assigned randomly one of the six houses in the game at the beginning of the game. And that gives you a variable player power, which in and of itself is a signpost just for you that you might want to uh, go down a certain strategy path. Uh, and that, that could inform the cards you pick up from the tableau in the game, the kind of cards you collect in your hand. Uh, and I know, you know, variable player powers are something that exists in others of his games. And and, uh, obviously it's a popular mechanic in strategy games across the board. So I think that too is like an interesting way to infuse signposting to the player, but also infusing that uh, variety of strategic paths. Like if, if you want players to explore, you know, different players to explore different paths in a game, uh, there, there almost is no better way of doing that than giving players slightly different starting conditions. Yeah, like starting them in completely different places or allowing them to take slightly different paths just based on the actions that they can take in the game. I'm very intrigued also, Jake, by I think in some ways we dove right into the heart of this conversation. But I think it's important (laughs) that we take slightly a step back and sort of say, why do signposts exist? And I think the answer to that question is complicated because in some games are completely signpostless games. Um, Games at their most base core is just like ascribing meaning to things in spaces, right? And in some games, the game is entirely comprised of players go figure out your, your way through this space. And other game systems are really complex. But the designer... So it's a really big, intricate space. You know, there's mountains and there's forests and there's all this area that you could potentially traverse in. I'm speaking metaphorically, obviously, talking about different directions your decision space might take you in. And it's a way for the designer to give players focus so they don't get lost and they can have a good experience, maybe their first time playing, their second time playing, their fifth time playing, without having to play a game say 50 times before saying, okay, I I get this space. I've mapped it out. I've charted it. I sort of understand where to go. Yeah, I think that is a fascinating question. And uh, on one hand, right, I think the complexity of the games does matter because a a lot of abstract games, as as I'm considering this now, don't have very much signposting going on. If you sit to play chess, you're very much on your own to figure out how am I going to put my uh, opponent's king in checkmate. There's nothing on the board in the player aid that's going to <laughs> point you towards, you know, oh, well, you really want to get that knight on E4 or whatever it is. Um, you know, so there's not a lot there. Uh, and maybe that speaks to the need for signposts to exist more, the more, complicated a game gets yeah i i think that that's that's definitely true if the design goal 
it depends on the design goal of the game too, right? Like why, what is the game within the game? Because in chess, it creates this rich environment where it's, it's sort of like, oh, there's no signpost. So what does that mean? Oh, and people are going to dedicate their entire lives to learning how to traverse this space, memorizing their own sort of shorthand in, in which different paths are interacting in different ways. But then in a practical level, a lot of the games we play, we might want to play three times. And you can't, you can't design a game where there's no signpost that has the complexity of chess and just say, go have fun your first time playing. It's going to be really tough to navigate that space. Yeah, I don't know that I don't know um, that that's true. Have you played Shobu? I haven't played Shobu. That's one of my very favorite kind of. Uh, it's an abstract game, uh, and it it feels and looks like something ancient, but I think it's actually just a game that came out in 2019 or something. Um, but you have four boards, and one player gets the white pieces, mm. and one player gets the black pieces. And your goal is you, the, the game components are literally stones mm -hmm. and you are moving your stones. Uh, if you move a stone on a, uh, one of your dark boards, then you get to do the exact same movement on one of your white boards. And the goal of the game is to knock all of your opponent's pieces off of just one board. So mm. it's, it's so simple to play that you know, when you first sit down to play, you're like, this is crazy. I have no idea how to approach this, but you can just like dive right in. And before you know it, things are revealing themselves. Uh, like, wait a second, I move this here, then I can knock off my opponent's piece. And oh, if I knock off my opponent's piece, then that'll leave this other piece vulnerable. Um, and so I think because of the simplicity of the system, uh, it allows people to engage with it and explore from the first play. So yeah. even though I don't, I mean, I, I, I have no idea. Maybe there's a very competitive uh, Shobu scene out there. So I don't want to disparage that because it's a game I love, but I don't think uh, people are playing that game as though it's chess and playing hundreds and thousands of times. But that doesn't mean it's, it's not like a very enjoyable experience. And I don't think it needs the rule book or something to say like, hey, try to cut your pieces into the middle where they'll be furthest from the edge and hardest to knock off. No, that's totally fair. And I think no game needs to be any one thing, for sure. Um, but I, I do feel like the more complex a game system is, and the if it's a modern hobby board game, to some extent, and you want people to play, some degree of signposting is going to make it easier. So maybe the way in which I was talking about it, like, right? Like, it sounds to me, Jake, your example of Shobu is like, this decision space is not massive, but it is quite large. And I am sorry, I haven't played Shobu. And um, and the fun of Shobu is exploring that space without having a sense of direction and seeing what organically comes out of it. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Okay, so, but I want to take on the other side of the spectrum. I think there are games that are very complex, that do very little signposting and kind of fo function similarly. Okay. I'm thinking of another game I really love, uh, A Feast for Odin, which I think maybe you also haven't played. <laughs> yes, but we've talked about it a bunch. So, and I, I do, I know what you're, yeah, yeah. Keep going though for the audience. I'm sorry, I'm talking over you now. No, you're good. So essentially in A Feast for Odin, it's a worker placement game where you have a bunch of workers and there's like, 60 different action spots and the game does i think i think there are things that can there are things that can be perceived as signposts i believe maybe we should talk through this but i think the game most people find enjoyment in the game because it allows you to play in a sandbox this game i'm gonna really focus on mm. hunting this game i'm gonna really focus on uh immigration this game i'm gonna really focus on you know exploring new territories and the game does very little to stand in your way of doing that you know whatever path you want to go down uh you you certainly can and that's how i've really enjoyed the game uh, again as as a sense of exploration with very little restriction yeah no, that's a, that's a really great point. So I feel like maybe in terms of the conversation, one thing that you're helping us tease out, Jake, too, is that the degree of signposting can affect the degree 
of how open or closed a decision space or path can feel? I I think that I'm just trying to think. I'm still like wrapping. I'm just wrapping my head around why signposting exists. Yep. And I think my thesis on that is it is something that helps with the first play experience. Hmm. And I think that is what it, it adds a lot of value to. Yep. That said, I don't think it's, I do think it's something that is very much open to the designer. I don't think if you're coming, if you're a board game designer working on a game, I think it's something you want to be conscious of and definitely consider how much signposting you want to put in a game. Uh, but I don't think it's something like that you need yeah, uh, almost regardless of complexity. It's just going to create a very different gaming experience that is actually separate from the gameplay itself it's it, you know it what it changes more is how the game is perceived than what the game actually is or what the decision space is yeah that makes a ton of sense to me no matter how complex your game system might be your game decision space might be once you know it you start to ignore the signposts anyway because you have your own mental maps through the space. Just like walking through your neighborhood, the first time in a new neighborhood, you need to look at all the signposts to know what the roads are and potentially how to get somewhere. And once you've lived somewhere for 25 years, you might not even pay any attention to signposts at all and they don't have a ton of value to you. Right, except for that we all use our Google Maps now and then we never actually learn how to get anywhere because we're so reliant on technology. (laughs) It's like the same in board games, except for Google Maps is just Rodney Smith on Watch It Play. <laughs> Curse you, Apple, for destroying my metaphor. So, no, I get what you're saying completely. Perhaps too, Jake, when we were first jumping into and, and discussing this idea of should we talk about signposting, it was a term that I had been saying sort of casually in conversation with you of like, oh, there's really interesting signposts in this game, or this is really well signposted game um or talking about even in our last episode was that last episode lost ruins of arnak talking about how i felt like it was a heavily signposted game and so much of those systems were sort of like just saying short-term goal just get to this point short-term goal get to this point like it was signs almost leading you down the whole path and that gave that game a really unique feel um that i liked that i felt like worked with some of the um, variability and randomness in some of the like systems, which surprised me based on it being a traditional Euro. And I think that the amount of signposting really helped that. Um, but you sort of brought up the idea of sort of this classic Euro spectrum of signposted games. Do you want to delve into that and maybe lay that out as a framework for people to think through if they're so like, I, I've been listening to this podcast for 20 minutes now. I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I <laughs> I wanted to tease this out further because I think there are still some things where I'm like, is this a signpost? Like, do we yeah. just consider, you know, before we started recording, I even said to you, as, uh, the more I think about signposts, the more I start to think like everything in a game is a signpost. And if that's the case, then nothing is. <laughs> so it's I do think it is something that I've been surprised how how hard it is to kind of like wrap my head around some of these things. But I do think, one good way to uh, perhaps understand the spectrum of what could be considered signposts is by looking at at the the holy trinity of gateway Euro games as as I see them, uh, and those are Carcassonne, Catan, and Ticket to Ride. And I think in these three games, you have very you know, again, it's a spectrum from very little signposting to signposts all over the place. And I think that really bears out in the feel of playing the games. Uh, so I think hopefully a lot of people listening to these uh, this podcast have, have experienced some or all of these games. And if you haven't, uh, you must because they are wonderful games uh, that are, I think, kind of kind of core to so much of the gaming that games that have come after but anyway uh without praising too much carcassonne is a tile placement game that feels as though it is signpost list or close to it uh you 
all all you really have in the game that could be considered signposts are uh the point scoring system where you know you you know that cities are worth more than roads and farmers are worth potentially the most and and potentially nothing at all uh which makes it, it a bit challenging to really see that as a signpost either but more or less as you're playing the game uh, you're, you're constantly in a state of evaluating the game state and just trying to play from the feel of it. Uh, the, you know, there, there's very little in the sense of like, oh, I'm going big cities this game. Uh, that that may happen over the course of the game just by the way your tiles come out and the way the board state evolves. But there's nothing at the start of the game that's going to send you down that path really at all. Yeah, and there's no tiles that sort of come out organically halfway through the game or a quarter of the way through the game that say, okay, if you have all of your your meeples placed in the lower left quadrant count for triple or something like that. There's none of that in Carcassonne. Right. So you have the game space. And I, I do see what you're meaning of like the the and if if everything is a signpost, then nothing is a signpost. And I think that one thing that's interesting to me is how Jamie somewhat separated the idea of like the destination, like where you want people to end up and things that point you in different directions of how to get there. Um, I think in some ways, the way that we're thinking of signposts, that might break down. Um, but in other ways, I feel like that holds up for me and what makes Carcassonne not feel very signposted. Because you know what the destination is, but the whole game is trying to figure out how to get there, yeah. right? Let's let's circle back on kind of end game scoring conditions. Okay. So let, let's move on to the next game in the spectrum, which I think is kind of right in between, and that's Catan. So Catan definitely has signposts that's going to point you towards certain strategies in the game. Uh, but they're kind of limited in the sense that what you really have is the longest road card. That's going to tell you that one strategy for getting points uh, is to make sure is to build the longest consecutive road. Very similarly, you have the largest army card, and that is a, a very clear signpost that, like, hey, one strategy you can employ is build a bunch of development cards, uh, and you know through that you'll be able to earn points. Uh, that's going to help uh, elevate you to victory. Um, I don't think it's a mistake either that these are physical objects that get passed around the table. Right. That you that you look at when you're playing and sort of say, oh, that player has that thing. Maybe I could aim for that thing if I get more roads than them. It's not just written in the rule book. It's a physical object that in the design of the game was purposely put on a tile that exists that you can get and get to. Yeah, absolutely. And then I don't know if I mean, I think those are really the yeah. outside of endgame scoring, uh, you know, which sort of tells you like the other, the third strategy would be just developing as much as possible and getting points for that. You know, there's really nothing else, but those are, to, in, to my mind, very clear examples of signposts. And, and, and that's just such a good example of what a signpost can do, especially in kind of an entry level game. You know, the first turn, you know, you might be like, okay, I'm going to build this road here. And you're already thinking to yourself, like, uh, that you know i'm going for this you yeah. know a, a new player is a new player of the game you know even if they've never played strategy board game before can so quickly internalize that hey if i'm going for this like there you go that's all you need and you've got a strategy going um so you're already able to engage with it on that level finally on our spectrum here you have the most heavily signposted game of the three and that's ticket to ride and ticket to ride signposts in uh, a, a variety of ways. Uh, first and foremost, you have destination tickets. Uh, so at the beginning of the game, you'll be, uh, you know, this is a, a route building game where you're uh, trying to connect a, a route of trains of your color across the map from city to city. And you'll start out with a certain number of destination tickets that will tell you that at the end of the game, if you have connected the two cities shown on your card to one of your routes, then you will get X amount of points. If you don't do it, you will lose X amount of points. So that is a very clear signpost that's telling you essentially like you must do this. Like you have to follow this path, uh, you know, because otherwise you're literally sacrificing strategies. So in that way, 
uh, it, it almost feels like an example of a signpost uh, with even less agency than uh, in Catan, where players could feasibly choose to ignore it and do just development strategy, where here the designer is saying, no, 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 They're taking the question out of your hands, you will form a strategy and you, you're going to like it. Yep. And then it allows, and then the game becomes, how do I link together these different paths that I'm being forced down together? Which is, I wonder as we continue to discuss examples, how much we'll sort of stumble upon different games that sort of make playing with signposting uh, and inverting that concept part of the game in some ways. Yeah, a- absolutely. And um, the the other way I think Ticket to Ride does signposting too, and maybe we could talk about whether this is an example of it, is that you know the the routes are already laid out for you in specific colors, right? So if mm. if you're wanting to connect two cities that is connected by a route that takes six blue cards, you sort of are, are again like strong armed just a little bit into strategizing and collecting and thinking through like how am i going to build up enough of this resource to do this and that's really important because you know the scoring system so heavily rewards uh you know saving up and spending on long train segments that if all of the uh tracks on the board for example were were the clear type where you could just spend any type of resource to do it, I think many more new players would sort of miss that element of the increase, the exponential increase in scoring you get by saving up. Mm. But here, because of the colors ascribed to them, uh, it, it kind of is holding your hand through it just a little bit. And even informs like the way in which you're going to take cards, which is sort of exactly the point you just made too. Like, oh... I know which cards I need to be drafting because literally I can look at the board and my signpost says I take blue. So when I have the opportunity, I take the blue. Exactly right. And and this is not a value judgment on any of these games. Uh, I, I feel like it could be perceived as a negative thing that I'm saying that the designer strong arming you through. I love all these games, but the play experience of them uh, is fundamentally different even though they're all very similar in terms of like weight uh complexity decision space i would say um the the feeling of playing them is different and i think uh i don't think it's a stretch to say that that feeling is largely informed by the signposting taking place i i definitely think that that's fair and i think so much of that has to do with the sense of exploration that you get to feel or i think really as you Ticket to Ride becomes a perfect example, the sense of objective completion. Um, you can create your own objectives maybe in in games like A Feast for Odin, where you say, I'm going to try to do this thing this game, um, but they're not intrinsic and in front of you, and they might not be gates that you have to jump through to get to the next thing. So a game that comes to mind for me where it really kind of, I think, led us down this path was Lost Ruins of Arnak, um, because so much of that game is... The the temple track specifically, I think, is really signposting what you need to do to continue on in the game. Playing that game, the more I think we played it and played it with people in our Discord, the more we all appreciated how important moving up the temple track is. It, it's almost mandatory. It, it is mandatory that you move uh, your magnifying glass at least ha- 75% of the way up the temple track. And your bird or your book at, at least but, halfway <laughs> your bird like what game are you playing <laughs> on the bird temple on the bird temple um the the board that is that specific one that we've been playing a lot but i think that lost ruins of arnak is a great example of being that side of the board feels like a really specific path with with lots of signs that are really gates so it says oh you got you got to this sign and if you want to get through this gate pay me two arrowheads and then you can move on to the next part of the path, literally. Um, And I like that because it gives you direction in the actions that you take elsewhere and focusing on what you want to accomplish for your turn. Whereas if you didn't necessarily have those things, you wouldn't 
know what direction to go down. And that's a really specific example because those signposts are literal costs that you have to pay, right? It's like the most literal version that like get this to do that. And it's not always, I think, going to be that direct, but I think it's a it's a good analog for what happens a little bit more abstractly in games that aren't as heavily signposted. Absolutely. I, I think I would put that game into the Ticket to Ride side mm. of the spectrum, right? At, as a, a very signposted game. And it doesn't, I think what I'm struggling with is that does not mean that it's a less strategic experience. Yeah. It's just a more specific ask of the player than in another game. I wonder too, Jake, if partially one thing, the more I've played the Lost Ruins of Arnak, the more that I feel like I experience um, the, the question whenever you play a game and you experience, it's like, what is the game here? Where am I, where am I getting my edge? And the more I've played Arnak, the more I feel like it's a game of planning. Um, you're trying to set yourself up to have your engine pay out uh, to have not even your engine, it's not an engine building game, to ha- but to have your actions pay out with the things you need to get high enough in any given round to keep going. So it becomes a planning game. So it gives you lots of signposts and you have to plan your optimal route by taking the right actions at the right time, um, in the right order to, to hit those paths in the right way, which interestingly, Ticket to Ride can kind of be that way. I was too. just thinking the same thing. As like as you were saying that, I was like, I guess Ticket to Ride similarly is a game that really rewards somebody planning a lot. Uh, you know, if you're if you're thinking just like one step ahead in Ticket to Ride, you're going to be asking yourself, why aren't any blue cards coming <laughs> yeah, up? Sure. <laughs> Whereas you know the the person who is able to think a few more steps ahead will be happily collecting four or five different colors of cards at the same time yeah it's and this is of course a a, we talked about the classic euro spectrum and i think as we talk through more examples different things might strike us so i felt like it would be useful to just sort of name some other games and talk about examples of signposting in them and for some reason my brain when we talked about this subject though i haven't played it very recently, though, I would like to get back to it, into it and experience it again, having not played it in a few years. And that game example is Seven Wonders. In Seven Wonders, at the start of each game, each player takes a wonder. And on that wonder, there's three stages. I think expansions might vary in this, but there's three stages of wonders uh, that you can build. And to build them, you have to achieve certain resource costs. Then you, on a turn, instead of drafting a card, you tuck it under the wonder sheet, pay that resource cost or have that resource cost um and then you have built that section of the wonder and that's a great way that when you start the game uh i think signposting and drafting games can be really important because if you are given a a pile of cards and you don't know what to do it's going to be really hard to make those first decisions and knowing what direction you're supposed to go but just by having a wonder sheet that has a few resources costs on it that's just enough direction to maybe push you slightly uh down a path and say okay just aim for this and it you know you'll figure out the rest you'll pick up different pieces depending on the cards you get you'll you'll find your own path but just head in that direction and it will probably work out okay yeah absolutely i think that speaks a lot to the variable resources set mm. at, at the beginning of the game, uh, which which could function a lot of ways. You know, we talked a little bit about variable player powers before, and in this case, it's you know variable costs or or objectives you're trying to complete. Um, and yeah, I think that works super well. Just giving people just a little, you know, you'd need a little bit of asymmetry uh, to make that first choice, and then yeah. once you've made one choice you're good to go because that that one choice will inform you know what you need to do next and it'll snowball a game that works very similarly uh another drafting game is uh it's a wonderful world which does Mm. it just a little bit different instead of having uh you know costs something you're trying to complete it gives you just uh there's i think five different uh empires that you get dealt one of randomly at the beginning of the game and they just give you a little benefit uh, you know it's either producing one resource of this color or maybe it's like a end game scoring for uh collecting a, a certain type of resource you know so it's it's very similar it's it's a really small thing but it's just enough that 
two people playing the game or five people playing the game are all going to evaluate their starting hand from just a slightly different angle. Hmm. Another sort of game that I, it's the most, I feel like abstracted example on the list we have in front of us of what we've been talking about, but it's patchwork because you're in patchwork. Patchwork is a game where you're drafting uh, different shapes to tetronomos, pentominos, all of these sorts of shapes, uh, trying to fill out a grid in front of you. uh, And you're taking these shapes and one interesting thing about patchwork, the only thing that I could really think of being a signpost in patchwork is that you are given uh, the goal of getting a seven by seven grid of a completely covered up space on your board. Um, and in thinking about this, it's it, it, just that one little signpost sort of says, try to be orderly, try to be neat and try to make these things fit together well. Um, and I think just sort of looking and sort of saying, okay, yeah, I have to make these fit together well, in some ways almost makes that game work. Um, because I could see a version where you didn't have that goal in mind, um, where you were just like, okay, this piece doesn't really fit with this piece at all, so I'm going to shove it over here. And you could really clog your board up in a way that doesn't work. But having that direction from the design just at the outset of you're trying to make this seven by seven, I think encourages you to go down the path of placing things carefully and cleanly and planning uh, in a way that really makes the game work. Yeah, I think that is a great example. And of, of an example of something that's just a little bit more subtle, perhaps, than uh, some of the things that we've been talking about, talking about before, though... You know, I think that, again, would be closer to the Carcassonne side of the yeah. spectrum of signposting. Uh, one that might be more in the middle, which gives you some signposts, but not too much, would be Terraforming Mars, another game we've covered on this podcast, which has uh, really interesting signposts of the awards and goals at the end of the milestones at the end of the game, which, you know, they aren't things that you have to go for. But they are definitely things right there on the board in front of you that are telling you like, hey, proceed down this strategy of, you know, building this type of production, getting a certain amount of this resource on the board, and you're going to be rewarded for it. I think that Terraforming Mars is such an interesting example, Jake, for when we're trying to tease out the difference between like, is there a difference between signposts and destinations? And and how does this work? Because in the Terraforming Mars example, the you have to opt into these, but they're all on the table from the outset. So they're like all viable destinations. So they're signposts because you could go in that direction. But at some point in the game, you have to opt in and, and, and purchase it and say, yes, I'm going in that direction. And then you open it up as a valid destination in some ways. So it's kind of an interesting example of a mechanic in a game functioning as signpost until the players opt into that signpost as being their destination. Yeah, that is, it is, that is really fascinating uh, how that works, especially coming at it from this framework. Uh, yeah, it's a signpost that's there until like maybe it's not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think let, let's lean into that a little bit because I do think it's important. Like what is the distinction between uh, end game conditions and victory points for being signposts and not being signposts? And is it just that it pays out before the end of the game? Um, I'm because I my gut feeling on this one is that some end game scoring is signposting and others is not. Like others is just to make the game function properly. So, for example, usually or not usually, but in many Euro games. At the end of the game, you'll get some amount of points for leftover resources. Uh, and generally, it's sort of a low value mm. payoff. Uh, and it's pretty rare that a good strategy in, the, in those games are to just get a bunch of resources and cash them in four to one at the end of the game. Uh, usually, that's going to be beaten out by some other strategy. Uh, so that is an example to me of an end game scoring. Like that's not like really signposting you down one path, but like uh, a game like uh, Castles of Burgundy has a lot. Uh, I would say that's a game that does have a lot of signposting 
in different strategies, but they're almost all related just to to straight up victory point scoring. So in Castle of Burgundy, you get points by being the first person to complete all of one color tile on your board, right? You complete all your animal field spaces, then you get some points. That's like telling you, you probably want to maybe consider focusing on some sort types of tiles so that you can unlock some of these first. The game's also telling you that, you know, you get more points by completing uh, area on your board uh, the earlier in the game that you do it. So that's sort of signposting in a different strategy of like, maybe you can just focus on completing spaces as, as quickly as possible. So to me, those, those are both like victory point scoring conditions, but they do function as signposting, but like, you know, trading in workers at the end of the game for two to one or four to one, whatever it is, like that's not. So I'm struggling with this. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I think that for me, one of the differences is signposts are elements in a game that direct a player in the down a strategic path or in the direction of a strategic path. And in some games, like the like Ticket to Ride, this example, the end game points are successfully going down that given path. And I think we have to separate that type of end game scoring in the way that we're thinking about it some from like the example you just said where the game's the game's not saying go down this path the game's not saying get a ton of resources and you'll profit unless that's the type of game but in the example you're using this is sort of a mechanic that gives you um consolation points for having leftover stuff. So I think the difference between those things is that when you sit down and you play that sort of game, you might look at it and go, oh, it's actually telling you the opposite. It's saying I'll give you points, but it's juxtaposing the paltry amount of points that it's going to give you for leftover resources to foil with or juxtapose with the other point options on the board and give you a metric by which as a player you can understand how valuable going down a certain path might be given the energy you have to exert to get down it so i think for me that might be the difference or i'm curious what you think of this difference too jake and it's very subtle a lot of what we're talking about are like very subtle differences and i think partially it's because that we're sort of new to thinking in this framework But in Kanagawa, a game we covered in the very first episode of Decision Space and a game that Jake and I both enjoy, um, there, I feel it's a, it's a fairly heavily signposted game. Um, but you can also just get points for drafting cards. Uh, certain cards will just have points on them. And those are end game scoring conditions. Get this card, get a point, but it's not giving you strategic direction. It's not informing your other actions. It's just something that is good for everyone equally and it's good to do, but it's not going to change your behavior except for maybe getting one of them. But there's nothing in that game that says, get a density of these things and then I'll reward you more. So it doesn't, I, I, it doesn't say that. So then to me, that's not a signpost. It's just a way to pick up a little bit of an edge on the way following one of the other signposts in the game. Okay. But what about uh, the fact that you get points at the end of the game for your longest string of consecutive seasons? Well, I feel like that's a signpost. But that's just end game scoring condition. Mm. Like there's nothing else in the game that tells you to do that aside from the fact that you just know at the end of the game you're going to get points for your longest consecutive string of season cards yeah that's interesting though there are rewards that pay out with potentially with storm clouds these wild sort of tokens that you can put on to extend your path so it the game does say if you do this thing maybe you want to do this thing at the same time um Kanagawa is a game where the end game scoring conditions are variable and that they allow players to opt out of how far they go down a given path. So like uh, as a quick example, let's say my goal is I can get two buildings of the same type and I've gone a little bit down that path and I could take the scoring, but I can never get the scoring for getting further down the path. So I feel like, Jake, one interesting thing about what you just said is I 
I we're we're in the blurry in betweens. I totally am with you, but I feel like that's a signpost in that if I'm go- playing Kanagawa and I'm going for one of the the signposts, the major signposts of the sort of scoring tokens, and I have the chance to opt out. It's sort of encouraging me, okay, opt out and focus on drafting these instead because that's going to net you more points. So abandon focusing on the those signposts and focus on this signpost instead. So I feel like, hmm, maybe, maybe one difference. I'm just talk, talking out loud here. I guess that's the point of a podcast. Um, maybe endgame scoring, uh, one difference is that signposts help inform your behavior throughout the game based on your position um so you can't always like see a sign i don't know i I, don't know do you want me to tease out the idea no i'm just like now i'm even more confused than we started the more i think about the more it's like there's nothing in games that inform the decisions you make in the game as much as end game scoring conditions but I think that we're we're talking in such abstracts, but what about things that make you focus on strategic directions, right? Sometimes you make a decision in a game that tells you you have to go in this direction versus something that you're not focusing as directly. And I feel like that's what a signpost is. It's saying, focus your efforts, focus your actions, focus your ability to manipulate the systems in this game in this way and see how that works. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think I can get on board with the idea then that maybe I'm misreading you, but would you then say Castles of Burgundy is a game without signposts? Because it is pretty abstract. And I would say like everything is so equal that there's nothing that's really saying... Like, okay, like, it is a viable strategy to focus on this. I think some signposts in some games might point you down a a path for an entire game. And some signposts function more as short-term goals. So I think for me in the Castles of Burgundy example, we were playing a, a game earlier. And when you fill in all of the tiles of a specific color, like you mentioned, you'll get points for that. So it doesn't getting like a couple, the the two mines tiles at the start of the game, that's a signpost. Go get the mine tiles early. Or maybe I had a, a castle tile, a green one, very easy to fill in generally because there's only a few on your board. So early on, I felt like the game was pulling me in the direction of like, maybe you want to try and fill in this green tile early on. But ultimately, I don't think Castles of Burgundy is a very signposted game, but I think there's a couple emergent sort of signposts that might pop up that help you go in a direction and feel some sense of confidence in the choices you're making. I think we get ourselves into trouble, though, using that definition, because that is almost saying to me, like anything in a game that allows you to make a heuristic decision decision is a signpost. And I'm not sure that's the case, right? Because in that yeah. case, it's like, yeah. Everything is a right, signpost. Right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, if, if that's the, where we go, then everything is signpost and nothing is. Like, you know, okay, like, yeah, I rolled a four and a three. So that is signposting me to, like, see what my options are for taking a tile with a four and or placing a tile with a four. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm. I think like, so. Maybe the, that is directing my decisions almost in the same way that the end game scoring is, because both things are intrinsically tied to maximizing my end game points. One, one through efficiency, and one through like, yeah, the efficiency of getting the uh, majority tile first. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's centering around uh, planning and focusing your efforts. And that's the distinction from like, I got an input and now with that input, I'm going to make this logical choice because it signposted me in that direction. It's not giving you a momentum of choices that you're building towards and pushing you in a direction. What if we said, how's this sound to you? Just throwing this out there. Are signposts, do signposts have to be something that tells you a specific strategy is viable. I think mm. if we focus on that, that is a lot more useful than saying signposts are things 
that help you make tactical decisions on your turn. Yeah, that's very interesting because I feel like with a lot of the examples that we gave, that makes total sense to me. But one game that I wonder then if it inverts and flips our def- if if our perception of that game changes is the lost ruins of arnak does then the lost ruins of arnak count as a signposted game if those tactical inputs don't actually function as signposts because they don't really inform a core strategy i would say that the signpost in lost ruins of arnak as i kind of mentioned on that podcast is the fact that that temple track takes up such so uh, much of the board so much real estate on the board yeah i think that to me is, is the signpost is the signpost that's telling you as a player you need to focus and pay attention on this because it's almost half of the game and then if you've read that signpost correctly and you're like i am going to pay attention to that then that job is done there and the individual levels, that's just helping you make heuristic choices. That's not actually signposting a strategy. So signposts are are indicators of viable strategic paths to potentially explore. I think that might be a definition that is more helpful. Yeah. I think I think just uh, you know, in kind of layman's terms, like when we first set up out talking about this. You know, I I, th- I was thinking of strat- strategy of signposts as something that when I'm playing a game for the first time, it tells me, "Hey, you could try focusing on this." Yeah, I I totally agree. I actually one of the ways that the sort of word ended up in my vernacular um, was listening to Mark Rosewater talk about how they design cards for draft in Magic: The Gathering. Um, and he specifically used the word to talk about multicolor uncommon cards that they purposely design and put in packs for when you're going to draft, where if you open your first pack, this is just like how we were talking about it in Seven Wonders. If you don't have a direction, it's hard to know sometimes what direction to go. So they started in more modern sets, putting in these cards that are two colors, sometimes three, depending on the set that are quite strong. If you know the game of Magic the Gathering, you'll see this card. It looks good. And that will then give you an identity that you can draft towards. And that's sort of exactly what you're saying, Jake, of like, okay, if I open this card, Agar, that says I should deal excess damage by using direct damage or attacking with giants, I then know my strategic path is finding lots of giant cards and lots of direct damage cards. And if I bring those together along with this Agar card that I have, that will probably be a viable strategic path. I think that is exactly right. Um, and let's, I think that an example of a game with a draft that doesn't really have this is a game like Blood Rage, mm. where you. Uh, you know, drafting isn't the whole game, but you draft different card. You draft, I think, eight cards at the beginning of each round, which you'll then play out over the course of the round. And there are strategies in the game that people who are very familiar with Blood Rage know to go for. And some of them are more intuitive than other, as you see a few cards. But without a knowledge of the card base and what's out there, you look at your first hand of cards like some of them are like objectives to complete like some of them are strong cards that give you power some of them allow you like upgrade something on your board and and there's nothing to really clue into like what i should be doing taking like how can i how am i how the heck am i supposed to evaluate this and that's actually been was a big reason i kind of bounced off of that game was because it felt like really hard to bring new people in like i i think it is a game that is a great game that's super rewarding for groups that are like we're gonna play this game with the same group of people a bunch and like learn and explore those strategies but this but it's not signposted there in the way that you're describing in, in magic the gathering yeah that's that's super interesting and in magic too like in a draft sometimes even then like there's so much information Without those cards, you could just be lost and you just end up with a pile of cards and feel frustrated and don't know where you went wrong too. So sometimes I feel like signposts can be helpful because they can help you understand where you went wrong. Um, I'll also say 
I feel like now we've been talking a lot about games with signposting. And to your point earlier, Jake, tons of games just like don't have signposting because the point of the game is more the openness of the space or like either it's exploration or I, I even thought of a game like Codenames. Um, Codenames is, to, to my knowledge, like not a game with signposting at all. It's just completely open and it's inviting you to make connections between different words on the board. It's literally as open as can be, unless you can you think I, of anything? No, I think that's right. And we could probably just expand that way further with a huge sweeping generalization that party <laughs> games probably just don't really have signposts at all. I'm thinking about, you know, just one, wavelength, werewolf, the resistance. I can't I mean that I'm sure there are exceptions to this rule, but you know I think in general party games are uh, concerning themselves with something very different uh, than the fun what, being going down different strategic strategic paths. paths. Yeah, and yeah. that kind of brings us back to maybe that definition that signposting, what it's really all about, is informing you as the player about what strategies might be uh, viable in a game. Yeah. An interesting, another example then becomes in my mind, we just talked about signposting and magic the gathering, but then last week we did not cover lost runes of Arnak. We talked about <laughs> Keyforge, And to me, I'm really curious what your impression of my sort of thought that Keyforge is, uh, is a game without much signposting. I think that's right. Just, uh, at, at my first reaction is that's correct. And I think maybe, that is also lean that also is probably has to do with the fact why a lot of people bounce off of keyforge mm. and don't see a lot there because the game is not telling you uh what strategies are viable and each individual deck is a new thing a new unique thing that is not telling you <laughs> what yeah. is a viable path to go down. Which literally combines, if you listened last week with the metaphor of what Richard Garfield was talking about, wanting there to be a jungle, every deck is a jungle that players have to explore and figure out the path through themselves. And I think this is why when so many people, like you're saying, Jake, sit down to play Keyforge the first time, they even just like, oh, I guess I'll just attack with my creatures because they're just going to like what they know from even other games and not having even the direction of like the very high level, which it's not a strategy. Forging keys is not a strategy. It's just the end game goal. So it really is about sort of looking at all of your cards and having that ability to bring all that together. And I think maybe once you knew the cards, certain cards could function as signposts in a deck. Maybe this rare sort of says, okay, this deck might have this identity, but that's a much, you're, you've explored the game a lot by the time you get there. Yeah. Oh. This is great. I think we cracked this one. Like, I feel like I've learned, I, when we were sitting down to do this, I was like, I was feeling a little apprehensive because I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about something that I don't understand at all. It's like, why are some of these things signposts and other things aren't? And I just, I feel like, I think we have some more interesting things to discuss, but I'm just like, wow, okay. I think we're getting a little bit of clarity around this. I think so too. And I think it will be interesting, Jake, and as we continue this discussion and sort of bring this into our lexicon that we use to talk about decision spaces and games to sort of really examine how signposting affects the decision space of a game or the perceived decision space of the game. And so often sort of the... We've said that the perceived decision space of a game is the decision space of the game as you're perceiving it, right? So, like, that's important. And decision spaces change the more you play them. Tic-tac-toe is a game to kids who don't know how tic-tac-toe works and is not a game to us. And that exact example plays out on a much larger scale with us understanding unsolved, complex, modern games or, like on all these sort of scales and thinking through how signposts can affect how decision spaces function and make us feel, I think will be really interesting. I think so too. And um, I do think it'll be an important framework to, to layer on top of everything else we're sort of working on and grappling with because it does uh, influence so much the texture of the decision space, as you're saying, you know, we've, when we started this podcast and, and talked about decision space, like we knew 
that there was more to it than just how big or small it is, Mm -hmm. right? And that different games of similar size and scope, uh, you know, have a different tenor to them. Uh, They feel differently to exist in that decision space. And I think signposting definitely is something that uh, plays a large role on that. Uh, And even thinking back to Arnak, you know, I sort of said in my uh, turbulence that it it was a game in which I, you know, some people might not like it because it feels like no matter what you're doing that game, you have to do the temple track and something else. And, you know, it's a, it's sort of a means to the end uh, and that might like wear, wear thin to some players. I think that has to do a lot with, the, the, the fact that I like perceived it as such, even in like a limited amount of plays, has to do with that signpost that the game is just there yelling at you like, you know, like, hey, dummy, like you have to do this. And yeah. that doesn't mean it's not satisfying. Like it is a, a very fun game, a very satisfying game to do the both and with whatever else you're trying to accomplish, you know, to make your way up that track. But it, it does confine you in some ways definitely and then to tie things back to next week with pre-planners i feel like grand austria hotel is a game where there's just signposts everywhere and i don't know which ones i'm supposed to follow and which one i'm supposed to look at and i think part of the game might be interpreting the signposts you're surrounded in with the dice that are telling you you could go in this direction or that direction and i as a player feel lost in that decision space as I look across all over the board, not knowing what sign I should focus on. Totally. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be an interesting discussion uh, discussion and to to bring this in there because I'm already thinking like, well, like are these signposts Mm. then like, you know, uh, but I I do think, I do think uh, we'll, we'll have a lot to talk about in that respect. So come back next week for the next episode of Sign Space. <laughs> Discussion about the signposting in games. <laughs> yeah. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And as always, we would absolutely love it if you want to continue this conversation with us. I think very clearly, perhaps more clearly than in any other episode. This is uh, something that is still evolving on the fly. And we know that Uh, You have a lot that you can contribute to help us all sort of understand this better. So that discussion is taking place in our discussion space on Discord, which you can find uh, in in a link, a link to in the description of this podcast. Also on Twitter, where you can follow us at Decision Spa and get cozy with us there. That's at Decision SPA. And if you don't like interacting with either of those medias, but you are a a pure and ardent fan of Board Game Geek, we have we post all of our episodes on a blog. We don't get a ton of interaction on those posts, but Jake and I look at them. We're excited when we see thumbs and we're even more excited if we see comments. So if you don't want to hop into the Discord, but you do want to share your thoughts, uh, be on the lookout for our blog. It's just called Decision Space, and this will get a, an entry just like all of our other episodes. And if that's a more comfortable space for you to discuss, we're excited to talk to you there. Yeah. Well, thank you for staying with us to the very end, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye. You are now exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm-hmm.